Welcome back to Microdigressions. This is Spencer Case for the first episode of 2021. We got out a good 12 episodes in 2020, and I'm hoping to continue that in the new year. Today, I am here with my colleague, uh, Matt Lutz. Matt, how are you doing? Doing great. How are you doing, Spencer? I'm doing pretty well. And this is actually the first episode since the one I had with Ryan Jenkins, which was the second recorded and the first that I posted, where we're actually together in the same room. And it's kind of a relief because I'm always worried about things happening with the internet and software issues, but this sort of cuts out some of the difficulty there. So it's nice to do it in person again. So Matt, you are a professor at Wuhan University. What is your title exactly? I'm associate professor of philosophy at Wuhan University. And my understanding is you have some really important personal news. Uh, I do have some really important personal news. Um, I just had a son a week and a half ago. A week and a half ago, I'm a new father. So uh, I am thrilled. Uh, my wife is, is thrilled uh, and um, couldn't be happier. Couldn't be happier. Uh, I meant that you were co-authoring a book with me, but I'm just kidding. Well, I'm also doing that too. Yes. Uh, it's just substantially less interesting. <laughs> yes, right, right. And your your son's coming home from the hospital today. Yeah, that's my understanding. Yeah, when I when I get home from recording this with you, uh, he's going to be waiting for me there. Uh, he was uh, he came a little bit early, so they had to keep him in the hospital for a bit just to look at some things. He had jaundice, which is common in uh, slightly premature babies. Uh, no risk to his health or anything. He was just a little bit more yellow than he should be. Um, so they they uh, they color corrected him, and, and now they're sending him home with us. So uh, I'm going to be able to to see him again tonight for the first time in a couple of days, and I'm really looking forward to that. That sounds great. And uh, you and your wife were here in Wuhan through the uh, really severe lockdown. I left right before that went into place. I was really conflicted about whether I should leave or not, but you guys stayed through it. Had it sounds like quite the year. Could you say a little bit about that? Yeah, it was pretty surreal. So um, the approximate timeline is that. So I, I visited my my family over Christmas for 2019 Christmas, and I was uh, we got in on New Year's Day, uh, and as I was landing, I turned on my phone and I saw a message from my mom saying, "Hey, have you heard this story about a, a new virus in Wuhan?" And my mom is a big warrior, so I said, yeah, whatever, it's nothing. So three weeks later, it turned out to very much be something. And we uh, got very worried, and we were staying indoors, and Wuhan turned into a, a ghost town overnight as everyone was, was staying indoors and wearing masks. I know that, Spencer, you've talked about what that was like in your uh, National Review article about how, how surreal it was to just see, like, the, the streets just empty overnight, and then anyone who was outside was wearing a mask. Right, uh, yeah. China had lived through SARS before, was it 15 years ago or something like that, 15, 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, so this was already kind of in the, the Chinese social muscle memory. Oh boy, a big new virus, time to wear masks. Time to wear masks and social distance. Like they already got the drill, and they started it immediately. Um, so it was a little bit weird and disorienting to be confronted with that. But, you know, we, we got the, the drill pretty quickly. And uh, after a few days, by the, by the end of January, uh, 
early February, they had started to ramp up restrictions a lot. You got out just before the really hard lockdowns came in place. Uh, but, but shortly after you left, there, there were barricades around our apartment complex, my, my wife and my apartment complex. In, in China, kind of everyone lives in these, in these big apartment buildings, which are in big residential apartment complexes with a few uh, main gates in and out of the apartment complex. And uh, they had barricades at all of the gates, not, not like little velvet ropes. I'm talking about walls with razor wire at the top of them so you couldn't climb over or anything with one main point in and out. Um, and that's where your groceries came in and out if you were an essential worker delivering groceries. And if you had to go to work as a grocery person or as someone who had to keep the, the water or the power on in the city, right, then, then you could leave with a pass. And if you didn't have that pass, then you couldn't. And you had to stay in your apartment complex, preferably in your apartment in the apartment complex, and you could not leave. And that lasted for about three months. Um, so when people, I see people in the U.S. talking about lockdowns, you have not experienced the lockdown until you have been behind razor wire and completely unable to leave with you know security guards posted at the entrance to your complex demanding a pass or else you can't leave. That's a lockdown. That's what we did in Wuhan. Um, and it sucked. That was a, that was a bad three months. Um, it was really depressing um, being stuck inside for that long. Um, but it worked. Uh, the, case, um, the case numbers steadily dropped over those three months uh, until we got to a point where there were zero new cases a day. And then they kept the lockdown in place after that because the incubation period for uh, COVID-19 is uh, two weeks on the outside. So they said, we're going to go two weeks uh, with no new cases. Once there's two weeks with no new cases, then and only then restrictions can be lifted. So we waited, we waited, and I hated it, and it sucked. There's four cases on the other side of town. Why does that mean that I can't go out and have fun with my friends? Um, but I couldn't, and I didn't. Uh, and then uh, in... Mid late May, um, we finally got our two weeks without cases. Uh, restrictions slowly eased up, um, and life has been back to normal ever since then. You know, I can go over to Spencer's place and drink a cup of coffee and record a podcast with him. We could go out to a bar. Spencer and I were at a, at dinner at a restaurant last night having beers. Um, it's been it's been normal here since June ish. Um, so the, the lockdown was intense, um, but it, it seems to have worked and everything is totally back to normal with the exception of, of travel restrictions. Of and course. everybody's still wearing masks. Oh yes. Right. Uh, that's one of the, the funny things you, you look at, you know, uh, America, there's a uh, coronavirus everywhere and, you know, people are reluctant to wear masks. Uh, China has had a handful of cases uh, over the last nine months and everyone everywhere wears a mask because like why wouldn't you it's just it's just the socially done thing there's no controversy over it all um it's just what everyone does now i think you've probably got some of the same conflicting conflicted feelings about this that i have so it seems like indeed this was a really effective policy 
on the other hand, I sort of am not sure I want to live in a country where people would willingly submit to being put behind razor wire so readily, even when it is the right thing to do. Yeah, I mean, I totally share that ambivalence because on one hand, uh, I'm a I'm a freedom loving American just like you. Uh, the the nature of the restrictions were very unpleasant. Uh, not just you know from a, a daily you know kind of life of being stuck inside, but also like you know um, it it offended my political sensibilities. But boy, did it get results, and I'm happy that this is the outcome i in in the best of all possible worlds the u.s was able to do the same sorts of extreme distancing voluntarily which would achieve the same results voluntarily but in our our actual fallen world uh Something you got to sacrifice something, right? You got to sacrifice your your political um, ideal, or you got to sacrifice um, hundreds of thousands of lives. So uh, it's making me question how dedicated I am to my political ideals. I, I still I still hold them as ideals, uh, but this is giving me a a different perspective of some of the trade offs involved. Well, if nothing ever makes you question your political ideals, no set of circumstances does that. That's evidence of of extremism. So uh, I'm glad that, well, I'm not glad of the circumstances, but I'm glad that it's it's having that kind of, that kind of effect. I think it's salutary. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Well, that's a bit of a longer introduction than we normally do, but the circumstances are really extraordinary. And I thought maybe some people could benefit from hearing what it was like to live through the uh, really intense lockdown. So I'm going to turn now to the primary topic of today's conversation. So today we are going to talk about disagreement and philosophical controversy surrounding disagreement. It's appropriate to have Matt on as the guest for this because he and I are disagreeing in our book that we're writing on metaethics. He's arguing for anti-realism in Metaethics, and I'm arguing for realism. And also, Matt has written some things on this very topic. So it's overdetermined that he would be an excellent guest for this. So I wanted, before we, I describe and we try to work out the philosophical issues here, I thought it might be interesting to think about the psychology of this a little bit. Like, we, it might not be apparent to us how much our beliefs depend on confirmation from others. Like, uh, even if you take the most basic kinds of beliefs, if other people didn't say that they also saw the things that you saw and you were sure this wasn't a joke, you would question your own sanity pretty quickly, I think. And you see this to a lesser degree when you consider like political or philosophical disagreement. At least that's how it seems to me. If I have some philosophical argument that I think is compelling or there's some view that I have in politics and I present that to somebody who I respect and I think of as a a peer, 
and it, it's not compelling at all. Not just, oh, I don't quite agree with that, but no, I don't feel the force of what you're saying at all. I find that I question my own reasoning to some degree. And if I do that three or four times and I get the same kind of, I don't see it the way you see it, now I'm not even sure whether I think that initially. I might just be confused. But I don't know if that's just me. I think there's something really general about that. What do you think? I do think that that's right. I mean, so one of the things we'll we'll probably talk about a little bit more as we go through the, the conversation is... Um, Cases where you will change your mind in disagreement and changes where you won't, uh, cases where you won't change your mind in disagreement. But cases where you do change your mind in disagreement are very common. One of the motivating data is that it's, it's often rational to change your mind in cases of disagreement. And in fact, we do often change our mind in cases of disagreement. And I think that's because people are by and large pretty rational. I mean, Obviously, not all the time. Obviously, there are massive mistakes uh, of rationality. Some people are able to convince themselves of crazy things like QAnon or moral realism. But ooh, 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 low blow, low blow. Uh, but you know, for the most part, people are pretty rational. Um, so, for the most part, uh, when we encounter cases of disagreement, which ought to cause us to change our beliefs we will change our beliefs in response to that disagreement. It's a little bit more complicated than that, obviously, and we'll talk about the complications as we go on. But I think there's just a, a really straightforward and sort of optimistic explanation of that psychological phenomenon. Right. I mean, um, I'm not sure whether you were trying to insult QAnon or moral realism more with that, with that comment. but Both equally. Okay, okay. Yeah, at least there's nothing weird about the causation involved with, with the QAnon theory. <laughs> There are no, no problems of reference there, not, not really. Yeah, well, there are, there are other problems. There are other problems. But it's interesting. I mean, you think of, of conspiracy theorists, and they really do have to be around each other for, to, to maintain this in their own minds, right? That's it, like an important datum here. Yeah. So I like that way of putting it. I guess I haven't thought of that in precisely those terms. So, so one of the things that I think about conspiracy theories is that the the conspiracy theory is is able to maintain itself because of its own internal coherence, right? And the ability of the conspiratorial agent to incorporate any new data into the pre-existing scheme of the conspiracy theory, right? Any any seemingly contradictory sorts of things can be subsumed as oh that's just part of the conspiracy in some way to get me to uh, to trick me or uh, mislead me. Even people who disagree with me, right? They're part of the conspiracy too. And so, of course, you know, you see this. If you try to argue with a, with a, a QAnon person, right? They're not going to believe you because they're going to think that you're, you're being uh, duped by the evil cabal of satanic child molesters or, or whatever. But it's, it's an interesting observation, which I guess I haven't spent too much time thinking about, but probably should that there, there's, a, there's a first step there where they just, they write you off. They say, oh, you're just part of the cabal or you are uh, being duped by the cabal. Are you saying this because you've actually interacted with these people? Um, no, not so much, not so much. So, so maybe, I'm, maybe I'm speculating a little bit over much here. I know that you have a little bit more experience with people who not, are... Not with QAnon people. Not I, with QAnon no, people? No, I, I don't know anybody who's in on this. Well, 
good. Thank God we have clean epistemic bubbles in that way. Um, but I mean, just from from like reading accounts of people, right, who have who have interacted with QAnon people, right? There, there, there's a there's a two step uh, process where the, the first step is they, they write you off, right? Oh, you're 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 a dupe of the cabal, uh, and then and then there's got to be a distancing, right? Um, after they've written you off, they can't be around you anymore. Right. And, you know, you, you read all these heartbreaking stories about relationships being being severed. Right. You know, I, I can't I can't talk to my parents anymore because they've gone down this QAnon conspiracy rabbit hole. Right. You, you hear stories like that um, sometimes. And, you know, I've, I've just thought about that in, in human terms. Right. How how tragic it is that, you know, these conspiracy theories can ruin relationships that way. But you raise the interesting point that, you know, maybe maybe this is part of of the psychological mechanisms of maintenance of the conspiracy. If, after all, you spend all of your time with friends and family who think that QAnon is crazy, that might cause you to reevaluate your QAnonish beliefs. So if you're going to maintain your crazy conspiracy theories, you almost have to remove people who aren't crazy conspiracy theorists from your life. Right. I think, though, that some of these mechanisms are not really particular to conspiracy theories. I mean, take the really, really ordinary belief that the world is, in fact, round. It's, it's not flat, right? I think if people regularly started encountering others who doubted this, people's credence in this would go down. I mean, maybe not very educated people, but there would be a, a loss of confidence in this. If just say every few months you encountered somebody who was really, really convinced that the world was flat so that the shape of the world was a live issue. Like I've never met a flat earther, but I think if most people regularly ran into these folks, they would doubt their own beliefs about the world some, to some degree. I think that's right. I think that's right. I mean, I'm, I'm speculating about descriptive psychology in counterfactual circumstances here, um, but that does strike me as plausible. Right. Well, I'm sort of generalizing from the fact that just in my own life, I just, I've come to be aware of the loss of confidence that sort of comes if your beliefs are sort of like rejected by people around you or peers and then you have to go back and rethink and do I accept that or do I not? And I think that that, I'm thinking of like political stuff, but I think that probably generalizes to other things too. Yeah. And I mean, so maybe this is going to uh, cause me to go back a little bit on what I said originally about, you know, people are generally rational and uh, they're, they change their beliefs in response to largely rational ways. So I still think that in general for the most part, but there's also, I guess as, as we're starting to explore now, just a more purely social dimension to this, right? We have some psychological mechanisms that don't just push for rational updating in response to new evidence, particularly new evidence of the kind provided by disagreement, but there's also just a, a social consensus drive that's built into our psychology, I guess, in some way. 
uh, or at least that's a that's a plausible explanation of the uh, just intuitive uh, psychological reflections that you're talking about there. And that, I think, is not rational. But wait, maybe you could say that it is rational in this sense, that you have a well-functioning social order and that the drive towards social consensus is generally truth-tracking. And it seems to be. Like, I see... What do I see? So my jacket over there, you can also see. And and you will confirm that, presumably, if I were to ask you about it. So it seems like generally we do arrive at consensus, at least about like basic facts about the world. So if there isn't consensus about something, that oftentimes really is a good reason to sort of think, okay, what's going on there? Well, that... The hold on, what's going on there is, I think, the the right sort of thing to to latch on to. I think that that is, in general, the question we should be asking in case of disagreement. Uh, Again, we're going to be talking about this uh, shortly. But in the the example of the the flat earth um, thing, if you regularly encounter flat earthers, the, the thing to think that is going on there is not... Wow, it's it's more likely that I thought that the Earth is flat. It's wow, flat Earthism is a much more common conspiracy theory, and I've got a lot more unreliable epistemic agents in my vicinity than than I thought that I did. Right? That's the right way to respond if you were to find yourself in that circumstance. So, to the extent that you would respond in the other way by becoming uh, less confident that the Earth is round, that would be irrational. No, I agree. That's true. I agree. That's true. Yeah. But, I mean, you're right in general, right, that uh, there are social there are social and epistemic benefits towards converging on a consensus and towards allowing your own beliefs to be influenced in profound systematic ways by the testimony of others. But I think it's it's a mistake to overgeneralize from that, right? Even though it is generally the case, that it's rational to uh, go along with other people. That does not mean that in any particular case, there will there's guaranteed to be even the slightest reason to go along with what other people have said. That's true. But just consider this following point about psychology, not anything normative about rationality or whatever. But uh-huh. most people, are, if you ask them how confident they are that the world is, is round, they're probably very confident. They'd probably be close to the center of their their uh, web of belief if we go with that model sure i kind of like it okay well then you ask what accounts for that is it that most people have such really really good evidence that the earth is is round like if you were to take the average joe off the street who believes the earth is round and put him up against somebody who was a, a a true believing flat earther and had these sophistical arguments i don't think the average joe is going to be able to refute him I think the truth of the matter is people believe the earth is round because that's what most people around them take for granted and always have. Um, so I think that there's a good deal of truth to that, but there's also, you know, other kinds of, of evidence, like there are pictures of the earth from space. Now, I mean, of course, flat earthers have their own accounts for how there could be pictures of the earth from space, right? 
I'm not sure exactly what they say. They gotta say like they're doctored photographs or something. They like have that. to say something. like they that. They have to say something like that, right? Um, but th- there's there's so many of those from so many different angles, and yeah. right, like you know, at, at a certain point, just like why are you so invested in this in this conspiracy, right? right. You can, yeah, you can give the there's one pretty straightforward answer, which is that the Earth is round, uh, and then there's another explanation of that data. Which involves this crazy international conspiracy, right? Which has uh, afflicted all astrophysicists and all scientists and all yeah, like yeah. any any you know um, respectable source of information, right? Um, that they, they're in on it, right? Uh, this actually anticipates things we're going to talk into later because there is an inference to the best explanation that's being done here. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely, yeah. So, I mean, if you think about people who are skeptics about evolution, there you can say some things about why the government would lie about and make a conspiracy about evolution because, you know, secularism is a real force in the world or something. But like with the flat earthers, it's really hard to see what would be the motive to lie this much about the shape of the earth. Purely to fuck with you. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, probably. I mean, it really is hard to see the motive. And that's why... I guess the inference to the best explanation would is so weak in the flat earther case. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I don't know if you ever saw the Netflix documentary Behind the Curve. I've heard it's been recommended to me so many different times I've never seen it though. I'm going to recommend it again. I think uh, I think you'll appreciate it and it uh, does have some interesting things to say about human psychology and groupthink and that. All right. Well, I I I know that I ought to watch it. It remains to be seen if I will. Okay. Okay. So when we go to the philosophical sort of uh, aspects of, of disagreement, I, I guess you're going to give me the history here in a, in a minute. But there's, I think, over the last 20, 25 years, something like that, been this interest in the puzzle of peer disagreement, which I'm going to characterize somewhat like, like this. So suppose that Matt and I recognize each other to be roughly equally smart, roughly equally informed, roughly equally intellectually virtuous about some particular question, maybe the thing that we're debating in our book. Okay, nonetheless, I maintain my position and he maintains his, despite each of us knowing that. There just seems to be a puzzle here about, now wait a minute, if Matt's mind is as good as mine as far as detecting the truth, why am I sticking with my own opinion? Why are I not adopting Matt's or sort of suspending judgment between my opinion and his? And why doesn't he do the same? You can also sort of motivate philosophical questions about this by considering cases where it really does seem like you ought to suspend judgment. So the, I forget who gives this case, I think you probably know, is it Elga, the, um, the tipping case? Uh, Christensen uh, is the, David Christensen. Yeah, David Christensen yeah. Is, is originally responsible for the tipping case, so, so it's become standard in the literature. Yeah, so I'll just give it. So it's just that uh, you and your friend are out for dinner, and you each try to calculate the tip, and you come up with different numbers. Now, in a case like that, it does seem like you shouldn't say, "Oh, my my calculation is obviously best. I'm going to stick with that," unless you have some prior knowledge of I'm better at arithmetic than my friend. But if you don't know that, you should, okay. Let's look at your math. Let's look at mine. And there should be an initial sort of decrease in confidence that happens there. But it's not like 
I'm an if I'm a theist and Matt is an atheist, Matt telling me I'm an atheist should like automatically bring down my confidence that God exists. I mean, it, we don't tend to think of it that way. So another way of motivating the puzzle is what is the difference between the tipping case and the existence of God case? So that's how I understand the sort of the sort of issue. Yeah. So I mean, you've you've basically got it. Um, that's the way that it's it's often d- discussed in the literature. I think it's it's interesting to to just kind of look at the history of, of how this became popular. You can you can trace some of the current interest to this one hilariously great crazy um, <laughs> paper by uh, by Peter Van Inwagen, uh, written in '96, I think, somewhere thereabouts. So Peter Van Inwagen. For those of you who, who don't know him, uh, is uh, a metaphysician, uh, a great metaphysician. Uh, He's and... a doctor who operates only on other doctors. A metaphysician. <laughs> no. Oh. Um, but he, he is uh, incredibly well known for his uh, work on the problem of free will. Um, and in particular, he's, he's known for this uh, one argument, uh, the consequence argument. Uh, which is an argument for incompatibilism about free will. Um, what is the consequence argument for incompatibilism about free will? Doesn't matter, but he's well known for this argument. Now, he's a lot of people disagree with Peter Van Inwagen. Uh, in particular, uh, David Lewis, the late David Lewis, disagreed with uh, Peter Van Inwagen on whether or not the consequence argument for incompatibilism about free will is any good. Uh, and um, Lewis is a famous for being a compatibilist about free will. Now, the interesting thing to note about this situation is that Peter Van Inwagen uh, and David Lewis are both uh, renowned philosophy professors, right? They have written papers which are seminal papers in their uh, respective areas, both uh, acknowledged experts on the metaphysics of free will. If you're taking a a course or just doing a unit on free will in a metaphysics class, uh, you're probably going to end up reading some papers by David Lewis and Peter Van Inwagen on um, compatibilism versus incompatibilism. So, so these guys are as expert as they come. Uh, and they've all read the same literature, right? They're familiar with the same arguments. They've read the same papers. Um, they know all the same stuff. So they're both brilliant guys, experts in their areas, familiar with all the same arguments and evidence. Yet David Lewis is a dedicated or was, when he was alive, a dedicated compatibilist. And Peter Van Inwagen is a dedicated incompatibilist. So what's going on here? And so Peter Van Inwagen writes a paper that says, this proves something. What it proves is that I have conclusive yet incommunicable evidence that incompatibilism is true. Uh, I must have conclusive evidence that it's true because... I am clearly rational in believing the true view of incompatibilism. Um, I've done my best to share this insight with David Lewis by writing various papers and books that are, you know, rightly famous. Um, But somehow David Lewis doesn't get it. So my conclusive evidence is incommunicable. And that's that's the conclusion of uh, In Wagon's paper. Well, that's easy easy to make fun of. Yeah, well... Right. And, and so then Gideon Rosen does that. He makes fun of this. 
uh, in a 2001, I think, paper, um, Gideon Rosen says, no, you're, you're obviously crazy here. Uh, you don't have this incommunicable evidence. You're rational to hold on to your belief, but that's because this is the sort of question about which reasonable people can disagree. Right, right. Right? Um, this is this is reasonable disagreement. You have the same evidence, you have the same arguments, and you just both disagree at the end of the day, and that's reasonable. So so um, it sounds like Van Inwagen is thinking that if our evidence really is the same, if our evidence really is the same, then we would have to agree. But we don't have to agree, therefore our evidence must not be the same. Right. And since I'm right, it must be that I have more. Yes. So I'm going to posit this, this new kind of evidence. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, and then, and then, right. Rosen says says that's crazy. You know, there can be reasonable disagreement uh, about this, and that's around the time when a whole bunch of other people piled into the debate and saying, "Wait a minute, hold on." So, look, really, what's at issue here is this question of whether or not there can be reasonable disagreement when you have the same evidence, right? Van Inwagen assumes that if you have the same evidence, there can't be reasonable disagreement. Therefore, I must have more evidence. Rosen is assuming that uh, there can be a reasonable disagreement even with the same evidence. And that's, a, that's just a, a different view about whether or not reasonable disagreements are possible. And this relates to other questions, like the, the religious question. Uh, Richard Feldman comes out with a paper around this time, I think 2004, about whether or not reason, reasonable religious disagreement is possible, right? So the, that Rosen-type uh, position which says, oh, it's just reasonable disagreement here. Right. Feldman says, I teach a philosophy of religion class sometimes. And when I teach the philosophy of religion class, my students are happy to say at a certain point, well, there's just agree to disagree. Right. This is just reasonable disagreement about whether or not there is a God. And Feldman's like, can there really be a reasonable disagreement? Right. After we've gone through this process of. Right. And so so this then is kind of what lays the, the groundwork uh, in the literature for this question of um, uh, peer disagreement. Right. If you are if you've got these peers, people who are like uh, David Lewis and Peter Van Inwagen, who have all the same evidence, the same arguments, who are both, you know, very intelligent individuals. Can they reasonably disagree or must they both suspend judgment in light of uh, the existence of their disagreement? And then we're off to the races. The, The literature started to explode from there on and, you know. Dozens and dozens of papers written on this. Right. So my understanding is there are a number of different views that sort of coalesced. The view that I described, or one, uh, one of the views I sort of, I sort of described where, well, why isn't it the case that you take my view and you take Matt's view and you sort of average them together? Something like that is what's called the equal weight view, right? Right. Well, it's complicated. Right. So what is the equal weight view? People talk about the equal weight view all the time. And the equal weight view says just what you said. Right. We kind of average them together. How do you average two views together, Spencer? How do you do that? OK, so this is how you do it. Maybe this is um, I know you're going to have something to say to it, but this is just my gut reaction. Oh. So I have a credence of of point eight that something is true and you have a credence of of 0.6 that it's true so i should bring my confidence down and you should bring yours up okay so that is one common way that um that this is discussed but um no, notice a couple things here 
first off, we're now talking about credences, right? But we started out by talking about beliefs. Yeah. Right? Um, so the the intuitive data that got people started working on this, right, is I believe you don't, therefore we should suspend judgment, right? We've got this doxastic model, three possible states, belief, disbelief, and suspension, right? I suspend, I'm sorry, I believe you disbelieve, we learn about this, we ought to then suspend, right? Um, this doesn't work in full generality. Um, this is an argument that Thomas Kelly makes. This doesn't work because what if I suspend and you believe going into the debate, right? So if I'm the atheist and you're the theist, then we should both become agnostics. But what, if, what if I'm an agnostic and you're a theist? I should be a less confident. Oh, I guess if there are only three states. Right. Uh, yeah, I don't do, know. Do we both suspend? Well, then I win as yeah. the agnostic, right? Yeah. Do we both go to um, accepting a weak theism? Well, then you win, right? right? So, like, the only sort of real way to, to solve this is you could, you could start um, saying, okay, there's, there's more than just three doxastic states, right? We've got strong belief, weak belief, suspension, weak disbelief, strong disbelief, right? But then you're going to get the same problem, right? Because what happens if I am a weak believer and you are an agnostic? How do we, how do we average out then? Oh, shoot, now we need to subdivide even further, Right. We can keep on doing this indefinitely. So, OK, credences now. All right. Let's bring in the whole Bayesian uh, framework. Right. Let's say that really what's going on, uh, we are averaging our credences. But there are. Uh, so what is a credence? Right. Um, I hate credences. I hate Bayesian, the whole Bayesian framework. So this is going to be one of my objections to doing it in Bayesian terms is the whole Bayesian framework is bad. And one of my objections to the Bayesian framework is that they rely on this notion of a credence, um, which I think is a little bit incoherent. Um, so the intuitive idea is supposed to be that belief uh, comes in degrees. And you can be more or less confident that something is true. Uh, and there are limits to this. You can be as confident as possible that something is true. Let's call that 100% confident that something is true. And you can be like not at all confident that something is true. Let's call that 0% confident that it's true. And then it, and then it comes in, in degrees between 0 and 100%, right? 0 and 1. Although... That by itself is a little bit weird, right? I just said um, I'm 0% confident that something is true. That's ambiguous between suspension and disbelief, saying that I'm not confident that it's true, right? That that just way of speaking. But in the Bayesian framework, 0% confidence uh, corresponds to 100% um, confidence that it's not true, right? So so that's that's one oddity of the Bayesian framework. Right is it is it takes this intuitive notion of levels of confidence, and kind of sets the zero point at complete disbelief rather than complete lack of confidence, um, and you might intuitively think that you should set the zero point at complete lack of confidence if the motivating idea is that confidence is the sort of thing that comes in degrees, right? So what I'm what I'm trying to problematize a little bit um, is 
the assumption that we can we can make an easy and unproblematic translation between this sort of uh, intuitive non-Bayesian talk of belief and confidence to a probabilistic talk between zero and 100%, right? Did I just hear you use the word problematize? Yes, I did. Um, by which I mean I want to raise problems for it. <laughs> Make it like you should be canceled if you... Yeah, that's exactly what I mean. That's right. exactly what I right. mean. Um, if you if you tweet about Bayesianism, then I will I will tag your employer and I will I will try to get you. Fa- no, of course. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, so there's that kind of problem. There's just like this also right. much so, more intuitive problem, right? Like that it seems spineless that as soon as I hear a disagreeing view from a peer, that I immediately meet that person halfway. Sure. Right. Okay. So sorry, I got a, I got a little bit distracted. Right. So so. How do we understand the equal weight view? Right. Um, uh, one set of um, worries that you might have if you want to go with a, with a Bayesian understanding is maybe you don't like Bayesianism. And I don't really like Bayesianism. So that's one set of worries that I have. Another set of worries is um, how and why you should respond in the case of uh, learning that someone disagrees with you. Right. So I, th- I thought it was interesting that the example that you gave is like, I've got 0.8 and you've got 0.6. And when we, we both learn that we, uh, that we disagree, we should, we should update by averaging, yeah. going to the, the equal weight, right, to, to 0.7. Um, now, there's a weird feature in the literature, which is that people never choose numbers the way that you just chose them. If you say, uh, I believe to degree 0.8, the person who disagrees with me always disagrees to degree 0.2 so that they can average out to 0.5. There's an ambiguity in the literature about what the equal weight view means on a Bayesian understanding, on a, on a probabilistic, you know, credence-focused understanding. Is it updating to 0.5 or is it updating to the arithmetic mean of the two credences? And when you look at Elga, who is uh, responsible for the label, the equal weight view, he actually says the second thing, the 0.5 thing, right? So he thinks that if, wait, so if each of us has a credence of above 0.5? Right. So you're getting to, you're starting to see some of the problems here, right? right? Um, if each of us has, so if, if I'm at 0.8 and you're at 0.6, yeah. right, then... We should do what? We should average to 0.7, right? That's what the that's what the arithmetic mean view would say. Question: Why? I mean, so we're splitting the difference, right? Um, but but what's good about that? Particularly, what's good about that when we're when we're splitting the difference between 0.8 and 0.6? Yeah. Uh, let, let's make this a little bit sharper. Let's say that we are both very confident that something is true, right? Let's say that I am 0.98 confident that something is true. And you are 0.96 confident that something is true, okay? Uh, Then we learn that we disagree. And so we need to update to the average 0.97. This is a weird thing to say for two reasons. First off, we don't disagree. We are both very confident that P, right? We have slightly different credences, that P, 
But we don't disagree about weather P, right? We agree about weather P. We're very confident that P. And because we're very confident, uh, because we agree about weather P, if I learn that you agree with me about P, then I ought to raise my credence that P, right? Or at least, I've gotten, at, yeah, at least not lower it. At least not lower it. But I've got 0.98 credence, right? I think I said I had 0.98. Maybe I had yeah, 0.98. Yeah. It doesn't yeah, matter, like right? That. Whichever one of us has 0.98 credence, right? They should at, that person should at least not lower their credence, that P, when they learn about the agreement over P. But the equal weight view says that they ought to. They ought to update. They ought to average to 0.97. Well, what about this? Suppose I'm at 0.98 and you're at 0.51. So you're just barely over the line of agnosticism about some issue. Would I, you might think that you should average those together, but you might also think, wow, that's quite a lot of divergence between two peers. Uh-huh. Maybe you should both just go back to the drawing board and come up with different credences. Sure, right? That, that's um, an, a conclusion that one might draw, and maybe it would be rational to draw, right? But that's not, that's not equal weight, right? That's, that's something else completely. Right, right. Okay. Right. So, so to summarize kind of what I've just walked you through, right? On one hand, um, we've got this, um, the doxastic view where there's only three states, and then it's just impossible to apply the equal weight view in general. Um, and then on the other hand, we've got this Bayesian view, which, which solves the fine-gradedness problem, but it introduces other problems. It makes this sort of intuitive data, I uh, believe you disbelieve we should move towards suspension, probably, who knows who's right and who's wrong, to a weirdly precise view about taking the arithmetic mean of credences which has counterintuitive implications in a variety right. of cases. Right. Yeah, that's right. And this this got glossed in initial presentations of the view because everyone picked things that were symmetric over 0.5, right? I'm 0.8, you're 0.2, we average to 0.5. That's yeah. the equal weight view. Yeah. But of course, to give it in full generality, that's going to apply, that's got to apply to any divergence in credences. But when you talk about other divergence in credences other than ones that are exactly symmetrical, yeah. and fairly far apart, well, I guess if they're relatively close together, but right, um, yeah. exactly symmetrical over 0.5, you try to do that in its full generality, it starts to look really weird. Yeah. Um, so what's motivating it in the first place? Well, what's motivating it is the doxastic thing sounds right, right? If I believe in you disbelieve, then we should move yeah. towards suspension, right? So the, 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 the doxastic one doesn't really work um, because it can't deal with a fine gradedness problem. The Bayesian one can deal with a fine grade in this problem, but then hits all these other problems uh, about how to apply and whether or not the, the view can be motivated in its full generality. Okay, okay. So the other on the other extreme from the equal weight view, I guess, is I don't know what they if there's a formal name for it other than the stand your ground view. The the idea that you you always it's always permissible to stick with your own beliefs in the face of peer disagreement. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that I understand that to be sort of the rival or one of the rivals of the equal weight view. Yeah, right. So the the way that the literature is developed, if you accept the equal weight view or things that are kind of like the equal weight view, you've come to be known as a conciliationist. And then on the other side, there is there is the steadfastness view, right? 
which says that uh, you should you should stand your ground in light of this agreement, right? So that's that's the sort of like the, the Rosen inspired view, and, and Thomas Kelly is also the um, probably the most well known advocate of the, the sort of steadfastness type view. Now, when you say you should stand your ground, does that mean to imply that I do something wrong if I change my view in light of disagreement, or that it's is it cashed out in terms of like permissibility, like I could stand my ground, or probably a variety of views here. Yeah, the, yeah, exactly. There's a variety of views here. Yeah. So I guess... I think I think yeah. any view that says that it is at least permissible to stand your ground would be classified as a steadfast view. Okay, okay. And so what are the puzzles for this view? I mean, one is just the puzzle that I started with that it, it seems like it doesn't explain. I'm admitting there are two minds in the room that are about equal that are going in different directions on some question, why am I just plumping for mine? It just seems sort of arbitrary. Yeah, exactly, right? And so this is uh, like the the check checking case, right? Uh, where we both split the bill and we come up with different results, right? If I just go, well, I'm right and you're wrong, right? That's weirdly arrogant uh, and irrational, right? Uh, another uh, case that I like a little bit better than the... the um, the Czech case is uh, the horse race case from Elga, right? Uh, we're both sitting right next to each other at the horse track, so we both have approximately the same angle on the race. I see horse A win by a nose. You see horse B win by a nose. Once we learned that we both saw the outcome of the race slightly different, it was a very close race. We ought to say, oh, well, I guess we don't know who won. Let's wait for the official call, right? Um, so cases like that, and those those cases seem seem to abound, right? You can we can create them indefinitely, right? I've got one opinion, you've got another opinion. They both seem equally reasonable. I don't know. I guess I guess we don't know what the answer is, right? That seems to happen all of the time, right? And uh, the the steadfastness view is just like weirdly crazily arrogant, right? Whenever someone disagrees with me, no, I am right and you are the wrong one, right? It's it's a formula for at least permitting the systematic discounting of the views of others, which kind of as we were talking about uh, at the beginning of our conversation, that's a that's a weirdly radical antisocial sort of view. Right, yeah. Maybe now would be a good time to talk about the, the Charles Hoyneman article okay. you mentioned. I take it that what he's trying to do with this article, why not to trust other philosophers? So it's basically about peer disagreement, within philosophy, why it is that you, you should stick with your own philosophical opinion and not go meet other philosophers halfway in, in the cases of disagreement. And his thought is that there's this value of autonomy, like intellectual autonomy, that would be jeopardized by that practice. That is basically the view. Mm -hmm. And so, and he does sort of like appeal to these intuitions that there's something... There's something bad about getting your opinions from others. But well, one of the things I think is off about this is like, well, if I am adjusting my belief because there's a peer who disagrees with me, that doesn't mean that I'm like being sloppy with my beliefs or being epistemically vicious. Unless you're sort of begging the question in favor of that, like I shouldn't do that, right? Yeah, right. I mean, so, so the argument in that paper deals with philosophical beliefs in particular. Right. Right? So to uh, Hunman's credit, he's not saying that, like, it is an epistemic virtue to figure out everything for yourself, right? Forget science textbooks. Re reconstruct everything 
uh, from the ground up by yourself, right? Uh, there's no virtue in listening to the scientists, right? He's not saying that. That would be crazy, right? He's saying that when it comes to um, philosophical beliefs, there is something virtuous about working out philosophical issues for oneself. And I do not see why that is particularly virtuous. I mean, so I think of philosophy as being a, a truth-directed enterprise, uh, and I know you do too, right? Uh, it's not like poetry. We're not, you know, in the, the business of self-expression. We're trying to figure out answers to these questions, and we're doing a terrible job of it, but that's what we are trying to do. Right? We are trying to figure out answers to these questions. And so we should take other people's opinions seriously as those, you know, efforts to attain the truth and perhaps successful efforts to attain the truth. Right. Right. We should we should defer to other philosophers, caterus paribus, for the same reason we should defer to scientists. Right. Because when it comes to science, the goal is not to express the virtue of working things out for oneself. The goal is to learn how the world works. And you can learn about that by relying on the insights of scientists. And similarly for philosophy, right? The goal is to figure out how the world works in ways that cannot be easily studied by science. And so for similar reasons, we should be able to rely on the insights of other philosophers to aid in our own understanding. So I guess what I would want to say is this, is uh, I think it's, it is credible that philosophy fundamentally involves the cultivation of intellectual virtues, not just getting the right beliefs. But I do wonder, why can't I defer to you? Suppose you're an epistemic peer in the majority, or you're even ep an epistemic superior given your qualifications and intelligence or whatever. Why can't I defer to you and say, okay, his view is the right view. Now I'm going to figure out on my own why it is he's right. Then I can, I can do both. I can take his opinion into account and, and arrive at the truth quickly. And then on my own time, I can cultivate my, my intellectual virtue and figure it out for myself. Just like I could defer to you in a math case and then sit down and work out the problem for myself on my own time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, so I see nothing particularly objectionable about that. I think an interesting point that you just brought up there is that we, we might have two different goals here, right? One is the goal of knowing whether P, and the other one is the goal of developing one's own epistemic virtues, right? Both perfectly <laughs> acceptable goals, right? perfectly sensible goals to have, right? If what I care about is knowing whether P, then there's nothing wrong with deferring to someone who can tell me whether P. Uh, and if I care about developing my own epistemic virtues, well, <laughs> maybe deference to legitimate authority is an epistemic virtue, right? right? But if I'm trying to develop other epistemic virtues, then there is valuable in going through the exercise for myself, right? Just like doing math problems, right? You do the math problems not because there's some pressing unsolved questions about whether or not, you know, the following figures you know, add up. Yeah. Right. What, yeah. Right. It's, it's to develop the, uh, develop the chops. Yeah. Right. The other thing is, even if I grant, uh, as I guess I'm more inclined to, if, even if I grant Huyneman that there are these epistemic virtues, the cultivation of which is central to philosophy, I 
might think that there are at least some philosophical questions that are so important that the value of, of getting the right answer there might just swamp competing considerations, like whether or not God exists, mm -hmm. what the true moral theory is. Mm -hmm. If the only reason I have to stand my ground is to cultivate this virtue, then that virtue would have to be like much more important than getting the right answer at any of these questions. Right. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, this is similar to something that, that David Enoch says about, you know, the, the so-called problem of moral deference, right? And uh, the problem of moral deference is uh, supposed to be this problem. It's, it's supposed to be a problem to defer to someone else's moral judgment, right? Uh, if I believe that killing is wrong just because someone else tells me that killing is wrong, that's bad in some way, right? And this is supposed to be a, a problem. There's a literature on this in, in metaethics. Uh, I think there's a lot of silly things that are said in this literature, but one of the more sensible things is what's Dave Dinock said, which is, look, if there really is a fact of the matter, if we're going to be moral realists, and, you know, we shouldn't be moral realists, uh -huh. but if you're going to be like David Enoch and you're going to be a moral realist and say there really is a fact of the matter, and furthermore, someone knows the fact of the matter, and, you know, you've got good reason to believe that they're an expert on this fact of the matter, well, you should listen to what they say, right? Whether or not an action is morally right or wrong is really, really important, can be really, really important, right? If we're trying to decide... Uh, whether or not, uh, you know, veganism is uh, morally required, right? A subject I know which is near and dear to your own heart, right? Uh, I've, got a, I've got a cheeseburger in front of me and I've got expert on ethics who's also next to me. He can tell me whether or not I am permitted or forbidden from eating that cheeseburger, right? And there is a fact of the matter and he knows it. And, you know, as many ethical vegans argue, right, like it would, be, it would be really, really severely morally wrong, right, to eat that cheeseburger. It would be crazy for me not to hear what he has to say. Yeah, it just does not seem like a, uh, you'd have to have an extremely strong, implausibly strong notion of epistemic virtue to cancel out all of the wrongs that you would accrue by trying to figure these things out by yourself when there's a legitimate authority there. Right. Yeah. Let's now go to what you take to be the correct solution, although there are a bunch of other sort of views that we haven't talked about. Or are there others do you think we should talk about first? Um, no. No. There are other views, but they're bad, so let's talk about the right view. All right, let's talk about the right view, <laughs> according to Matt Lutz. Yeah, so, you know, the right view, full stop. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> so... Before I get into the details of my view, I just want to add a couple more complaints that I have about the literature uh -huh. um, and the way that the problem is, is phrased. This will kind of steer into what my, my view is, uh -huh. right? So the problem that we've been talking about is the problem of peer disagreement, right? And that is the problem of what to do when you disagree with someone who is your epistemic peer. So what's an epistemic peer? You can give a sort of rough and ready characterization, you know, like we have before, right? This is Peter Van Inwagen and David Lewis. These are epistemic peers, right? These are both philosophers who are, uh, you know, preeminent in their fields, equally well-versed in the literature, yada, 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 right? So that's sort of the idea. People like that. And there's a reason why we focus on people like that, right? Because if I'm clearly more knowledgeable than you are, then uh, you should defer to me. And if you're clearly more knowledgeable than I am, then I should clearly defer to you, right? It's only when... We're tied, in a sense, that we should defer uh, to each other, 
and split the difference, right? Um, that's sort of the, the idea behind the, the equal weight view. But what does it mean to be tied in a sense? In what sense must we be tied? This is a point that was made really well in a, uh, another paper by King, who argues that, so one way to do it is to say, look, two people are peers if they've got exactly the same evidence and they're exactly equally good at reasoning. That's what it takes to be a peer. But if that's how we define peerhood, then I don't have any epistemic peers. No one has exactly the same evidence that I do. No one is exactly equally rational as I am. So I don't have any epistemic peers. So peer disagreement may be somewhat interesting as just like a, a stupid abstract philosophical puzzle, but completely practically worth it. And I want to add a, a point to this. Mm -hmm. Suppose you've got one scholar who is like the leading man in his area or something like that. Mm -hmm. He's like the leading guy. Mm -hmm. Does that mean he doesn't have to take into account anyone else's opinion because nobody are his peers right right so so then then we grab okay okay so it's not it's not really peer disagreement right it's it's near peer disagreement right if someone's close that's close enough to count what if we just say disagreement not by crazy people or not by psychopaths they're just it's we're talking about disagreement and that's understood to rule those people out right well that's what i want to do okay right um, is I want to say that, look, there, there is no problem of pure disagreement. There's a problem of disagreement in general, right? And so, well, when it comes to disagreement, what should you do in the case of disagreement? The answer is, of course, it depends. It depends on, you know, how well-informed I am and how well-informed you are, and right? Well, I'll give a pretty detailed account of what it depends on in, in a second, right? But obviously, it depends, right? And then people start asking this question about peer disagreement, right? What should you do in peer disagreement, right? I think the answer is still, it depends. And it depends on the same things. And part of the reasons why we should say it depends is because no one is your peer. And among near peers, it depends, right? So just, just to get back to the point of, of near peers for a second, right? The problem with talking about near peers. So we're, we're near peers because uh, we are almost exactly equally rational and have almost exactly the same evidence, right? But even if you are my near peer, it might still be irrational for me to defer to you at all because I might have just one more piece of evidence than you do. But that one piece of evidence, ooh, it's a doozy. Yeah. It's a biggie, right? It makes a huge difference, right? We, we might be um, two people inspecting the crime scene who have seen all the clues laying around, but there's one difference between you and I. I saw him do it, right? So if we disagree, I'm right. I should, right? So... Of course, you would say, okay, so we're not really near peers, right? Even though I've got one more piece of evidence, that's like a really big and important piece of evidence, right? So, right, it is a big and important piece of evidence, but we're still peers in the sense of having almost exactly the same inputs, right? What makes us non-peers is that we ought to have different attitudes, right? The, the degree of rationality, the, um, the reliability of the evidence that we're relying on, etc., is radically different. Right, so maybe we want to define peers in this other way, right? Um, we're, we're peers if we are equally likely to be right about it, right? And maybe what it takes to be equally likely to be right is having this similar evidence, a similar reasoning capabilities. But really, we should define peers in terms of whether or not it's equally likely to be right. And we could do that, but if you do it that way, 
then what should you do if you find yourself in a disagreement with someone who is equally likely to be right? Well, you should suspend judgment, right? Because that's the way that we've defined it. And this goes back to the earlier point that I was making about how to, how to split the difference, right? And why Elga chooses the updating to 0.5 thing as his definition of the equal weight view is because he defines peers in that second way. A peer, according to Elga, is someone such that if you find yourself in a disagreement, your credence conditional on disagreement equals 0.5. So It's a stipulated answer. Yeah, well, if you accept just the Bayesian rule of updating by conditionalization, right? It's just yeah. a corollary of, of conditionalization, right. um, the equal weight view, right? So, you know, I'm not the first person to have noticed that uh, Elga makes his, you know, view. It's this huge, long paper with, you know, dozens of citations, maybe hundreds, right? But if you read it down to the footnotes, you'll find that really the, the view, when you, you know, look at all the definitions of the terms, it turns out to be a corollary of uh, conditionalization, right? Now, people... When they notice this, they said, okay, so that just shows that maybe there's something weird about the, the approach here and we need to just clean this up a little bit. I think that just shows that the, the entire approach of trying to focus on peer disagreement is mistaken because we don't know what a peer is, right? So the answer, what do you do when you disagree with a peer, a near peer? It depends, right? It depends on the nature and quality of your evidence and how the nature and quality of your evidence relates to the nature and quality of your near peer's evidence. But that's just true of disagreement in general. What should you do in case of disagreement? You should, it depends on the nature and quality of your evidence and the nature and quality of your peers' evidence, right? And your evidence about your peers' evidence, right? Because I don't have direct access to, to what your evidence is. So that's the, the first, first point that I want to make, right? Is that talking about this in terms of peer disagreement is silly in some ways. And this, this standard framing within the literature has much bigger foundational problems than are, are frequently realized, right? It's a general problem of disagreement. And I think that the way to understand the general problem of disagreement is really just a general problem about testimony, right? When we disagree with somebody, what happens is we're getting testimony that not P when I believe that P, right? So what should I um, believe in cases of disagreement? Well, that's going to depend on how testimony works in general. So we need an account of the epistemic value of testimony. And I think everything's going to follow from that. Once we know how testimony works, that'll tell us what to do in case of disagreement. And once we know how disagreement works, then we can apply this in cases of so-called peer disagreement or near-peer disagreement. So how does the epistemology of testimony work? Well, the epistemology of testimony works the same way that the epistemology of anything works, which is by inference to the best explanation. So what I just said there was a statement of explanationism. Explanationism, uh, at least the version of explanationism that I accept, is a, is a global version of explanationism. It says that all epistemic justification is a matter of inferring to the best explanation, right? This includes perception, right? Uh, I see you sitting on the couch next to me. Spencer, why am I justified in believing that you're sitting on the couch? Well, because I'm having visual experience. And the best explanation of my visual experience is that you really are sitting on the couch next to me. And that's why I'm justified in believing that you're sitting on the couch. In order to be justified in believing things, primarily we have experiences, right? And then we infer from those experiences to some sort of model of the way the world works. And that model is justified because it makes sense of our experience. And 
then once we have this model, we can sort of read predictions off of that model, right? The, the model generates predictions, right? Just the way that the, um, the model which says that there are some natural powers which cause the, the sun to rise every morning, right? And the, uh, the history of astronomy is a history of more and, more and better models of you know, what, what the world is actually like such that that occurs, right? Um, and the model that we accept now is the one that has proven over time to have the, the best explanatory power, predict, uh, particularly in virtue of having the best predictive power, right? Predicting the sorts of observations that we make astronomically, right? Through, through telescopes and the like. So this is a fully general sort of thing, right? We have our experiences. On the base of our experiences, we infer a model of the way the world works, uh, a mental model, of the way the world works, which explains our experiences, and then that model in turn generates predictions, and we will subsequently update our model when it makes successful or unsuccessful predictions, right? If the model makes uh, unsuccessful predictions, that's evidence that things have gone wrong in some sense with our model, and so that's disconfirmation for the model, or at least for the elements of the model that were responsible for generating the unsuccessful prediction. And when we do have the experiences that we expect, that we predict, that is evidence that the model has gone right, at least in those respects that are generated the, the successful prediction, uh, and so that is some confirmation for those elements. So justification and confirmation are a matter of successful and unsuccessful prediction of models, and we should accept views that fit well with well-confirmed elements of our mental. So that's, that's the general epistemic frame. Okay, so definitely a lot more to say about this. Yeah. But why don't you put this to work right. on the peer disagreement or disagreement problem? Sure, right. So that's, that's the general framework, right? Uh, and the, the point that I make in, in my paper is once we accept this as a general framework for correct thinking, um, we can apply this straightforwardly to the problems of testimony and uh, disagreement, and it resolves everything very neatly. So how does testimony work then, Right. Um, if you tell me that P, then I ought to believe that P if P is the best explanation of my experience. The experience is that you told me that P, right? So let's say that you you tell me that you saw your, your girlfriend last night, all right? Uh, I should believe that you did. Why is that? Well, I had an experience. What's the best explanation of uh, my having that experience is that you told me, right? Maybe I'm, maybe I'm a brain in a vat. Maybe I'm being deceived by an evil demon. Or um, I could be lying about it, right, but, oh, but, but, but why first, would I? First that you told me, right? Yeah. Why did you tell me? Yeah. So why why did your believing it result in you telling me? Because you're not a liar, right, right? right? I mean, you you could lie to me, but you know I've known you for a while now. You've proven to be generally pretty trustworthy. I can't think of any obvious reason why you would lie. And according to my you know most well confirmed model about the psychology of Spencer, you would tell me the truth, right? Um, so you told me because you believe it. Why would you believe it? Well, you believe it because it's true, right? You are very much in a position to know whether or not you were with your girlfriend last night. You haven't completely lost track of reality, right? You're not entirely delusional, right? You've got a, a good enough memory, right? Um, so that's why you would believe it, right? Now, all these are, of course, defeasible inferences, right? I could learn things which would make me doubt any of these things, but just according to my general default model of how conversation works and how Spencer works, um, the best explanation 
of why I had this experience doesn't involve you seeing your girlfriend last night, right? So that's why I'm justified in believing that you saw your girlfriend. Now, part of this is that I take you to be competent on the subject in question, right? Mm-hmm. You would know, mm-hmm. right? Uh, you are in causal contact with the event of you seeing your girlfriend mm-hmm. last night, right? That's, that's part of the model, right? So I'm justified in trusting you, trusting your testimony, if you're competent, Right. If you, according to my model, if I take you to be competent, right, if according to my model, you are in contact, right, causal explanatory contact um, with the event in question. So if you are like that, right, if you are someone that I take to be in contact with the truth of the proposition, then I ought to trust you. Right. Now, let's now let's apply this to disagreement, peer disagreement um, between two competent peers. Right? We're not talking about ignorant people who are just spouting off nonsense that they don't know anything about. Mm-hmm. We're talking about two people who are in a position to know. Right, mm-hmm. Me and you. Right, So I'm in a position to know. What does that mean? Well, at least it means that I'm justified, which means that if I'm justified in believing that P, then P fits with my model of the way the world works better than anything else. Now, I take you to be competent regarding whether or not P, which means that I take you to be in contact with the fact of the matter, whether P, right? So this has then some predictions, right? P fits well with what I believe, and you are in contact with the fact whether P, and in fact, or so I believe, P. So when I ask Spencer, Spencer, P or not P, you will say P, because P fits into my model, And if P is true, then Spencer will say P because he is in contact with the fact of whether or not P is part of my model. So when I say Spencer, P or not P, you're going to say P. That's a prediction generated by my model. And then you say not. Oh, no. Something has gone wrong. Some element of my model is incorrect. Some revision needs to be made. I need to change things. Right? So how do I change things? Well, it depends. Right? It depends on the nature and quality of my evidence regarding whether P, and it uh, depends on the nature and quality of my evidence for thinking that you are competent regarding whether P. Well, this is going to get tricky in exactly the kind of cases that we're interested in, though, right? Like, it's not like you can say Van Inwagen defended incompatibilism and he turned out to be wrong. It's like you, you'd be taking a position on that debate to say that. Well... Okay, good. So let's start with some easier cases. Okay. Then. Okay. So let's talk about the horse race case. All right. I see horse A win by a nose. You see horse B win by a nose. All right. So let's think about how this works out. Right. I have visual experience. It is a visual experience as of A winning by a nose. So I think that A won by a nose. I think that you're competent. You're sitting next to me. You saw the same race that I did. You've got generally good eyesight and good judgment. So I think that Spencer also saw what I saw. I think that you believe that A won by a nose. Spencer, did A win or B win? You say B won. Okay, something weird's going on. What happened, right? Spencer's lying. He's probably not lying, though, right? So what happened is probably you took yourself to see mm-hmm. that B won. And I'm pretty sure that I saw that A won. Um, but it was a close race, right? So what fits better with this model? What's, what, which hypothesis is a, is a better fit? Really, neither one. I don't need to make any radical changes to my, the reliability of my visual faculties 
or to my beliefs about the reliability of your visual faculties. After all, it was a really close race, right? And we, we're not like right at the finish line. We don't have great seats at the horse race, right? So, and people make mistakes sometimes. Maybe I made a mistake, maybe you made a mistake, right? So that's why we should suspend in this case. Because upon learning about the disagreement, either one seems pretty reasonable, right? Um, the mistake could easily be on either end. The, the proposed model where I make a mistake does just as good a job of systematizing my total experiences as the proposed model where you made a mistake. So neither model has anything more to recommend it than the other. We wait for the official call from the announcer, right? And then we'll know which one's the right one, right? Because, of course, the announcer has, is looking at sophisticated equipment, which uh, are much more reliable than our particular eyesights from our good but not all that great seats, right? So definitely the best explanation of the announcer's call is the truth of the announcer's call. And so then we should accept whatever best coheres with that, right? Here's another case, right? Um, the mail carrier case uh, from a paper by Errol Lord, right? So in the mail carrier case, I talk to my mail carrier and the mail carrier I find out believes that my ex-roommate who moved out a month ago still lives in my apartment, right? Now, when I find out that there's this disagreement, so there's a proposition, right? I believe the roommate moved out. The mail carrier believes the roommate did not move out. The roommate still lives in the apartment, right? There is a disagreement over this proposition. And prior to learning about this disagreement, it looked like a case of peer disagreement. If you'd asked me prior to this uh, conversation how competent the mail carrier is regarding who lives in the apartment, I'd say very, right? She's walked this mail route for years, right? Yeah. She knows everyone, right? Right. She looks at the names on the letters all day, every day, right? She knows. She's you know, fully competent on this just as I am, right? But then when I learn that uh, the mail carrier disagrees with me about this, I learn that she's not my peer anymore. Yeah. yeah. Right? Why is that? Well, because when I, when I ask, does the roommate still live in the apartment, right, I predict she will say, no, we moved out, right? But then she says he still lives there. Oh, no, predictive failure. Something needs to change in the model, right? So, so what would it mean to change my model such that I am wrong? Well, that would mean... The roommate's living in the basement or something, yeah. right? He, you know, claimed to be moving out, right? I helped him pack up his boxes. We shook hands. Uh -huh. I wished him well. And then he snuck in through the back door and has been secretly living in the crawl space, right? Yeah. Ever since then. Like, I mean, maybe, but that that would be weird, right? What would it take um, to explain why the mail carrier thinks that he, my roommate still lives with us? He just didn't update his mailing address. And yeah, he is kind of forgetful, right? <laughs> That's the kind of stupid mistake he would make, right? So in that sort of case, right, the, the best explanation in light of that disagreement is that I am right and she is wrong, right? Okay. Uh, and this is decided, again, by, you know, looking at what sorts of changes would be need to make to the model, right, to accommodate my rightness versus your rightness in the cases of, of disagreement. In the horse race case, the changes that need to be made to the model are minimal and symmetrical, mm -hmm. right? Uh, in the mail carrier case, they are not symmetrical, right? The the sorts of because the the nature of our evidence is so different, right? 
And because I actually live at the house, right? Like I need to make massive revisions to my model of how my house works or how my roommate acts, right? So, so that asymmetry between the sorts of changes that would need to be made to the, the model of how the world works explains why in that case of quote unquote peer disagreement, I should be steadfast rather than conciliatory, right? So now we come to philosophy okay, and ethics. So you'll notice there's an immediate problem here. How is it going to be the case at all ever that philosophical truths make a difference to what I believe, right? You'd have to have the answers. Yeah, you'd have to, you'd have to be in contact with the answers in some sort of way, right? The, the fact of the matter must explain the belief. It's very, very clear how that could work when we're talking about horse races and, you know, belief about who, who, uh, who lives in my apartment. But how could facts of the matter about, you know, the moral truth or about the truth of compatibilism or incompatibilism, how could those make a difference to what I believe? Well, that's a hard question. And I'm inclined to say they don't. They can't. So what should we believe in the case of philosophical peer disagreement? You should suspend judgment. And the reason is because you should have been suspending judgment to begin with. Because philosophical claims are not the sorts of things that can make any sort of difference to what our beliefs are. Aren't you taking a philosophical position here? Right. So, of course, that's the... So, to, to zoom out a little bit, right? Um, I am uh, articulating an empiricist and, you know, skeptically empiricist sort of view of the kind that you will find in Hume and in, like, the logical positivists, Right. Uh, with with my own little explanation as flourishes, right? But it's it's fundamentally quite similar to, to a Humean skepticism. And then, of course, the major objections is, well, aren't these self-undermining, right? And my answer is potentially self-undermining. You just got to be careful about how you do it. I have been articulating a philosophical view about the the nature of confirmation and disconfirmation. I've been appealing to a lot of intuitions, Right? And everything that I've said sort of seems right to me. And I think that when I appeal to cases and I make claims that sort of just intuitively seem right, that is, so why, why would these things seem right to me? Well, I think that's just a, a function of the, the concepts that I'm deploying. Concepts are mental states or mental state types, right? Um, the concepts that I have are at least realized in the mental states that I have. Mental states are, if not identical to functional um, states, they at least have a functional profile. And part of the functional profile of my conceptual mental states is dispositions to deploy them in various cases. And those manifest phenomenologically in certain sorts of claims just seeming right and other sorts of cases just seeming weird or conceptually confused or making a category error or something like that. This then uh, amounts to a sort of endorsement of the uh, old positivist view, which says that I can know about facts of matter in the world because they causally are responsible for my uh, sensory experiences. And I can have a priori conceptual knowledge because there's this kind of causal, kind of constitutive, functional explanation available for um, why I have the intuitions 
uh, and intuitive judgments that I have when deploying uh, these concepts. So I can know about uh, a posteriori things in the world, and I can know a priori conceptual truths, but I can't know anything about the synthetic a priori. So this is a skepticism about synthetic a priori, but it is not a skepticism about conceptual a priori claims. And I take that everything that I've said about justification and its application to testimony and disagreement and peer disagreement to be justified as conceptual truths about justification and confirmation, which are non-obvious conceptual truths, but which can be revealed to be true by the fact that everything that I've said just sounds so clearly to be true in our conversation today. Right. Um, so I think we're going to end up on a opposite sides of a gulf that will not be bridged yes. on this episode. But to ask like a clarifying question, there's a question of like what you would want to be explained by the model. Mm -hmm. Like people have different views of evidence. There's a mentalist view of evidence where evidence has got to be something in your mind. And some others think that uh, physical objects can be evidence in the way that like a knife with fingerprints on it would be evidence. And so if you're thinking that, say, it's not our concepts that, are, that need to be explained, but, I don't know, substantive philosophical truths that we know because we have certain concepts and we have certain intuitions, then it seems like, well, it just wouldn't be a very good model for capturing those things. But it seems like you you have a view of evidence that would rule out that kind of a, of a move. Yeah. So evidence, roughly speaking, are explananda, right? Things that must be explained. Now, we can then say that, so you said there's, there's a difference between a mentalist sort of view, yeah, right? Uh, where the, the evidence is my experiences and, or something like that. And a, a sort of physicalist, uh, externalist view, right? Where the, the evidence is the knife, right? The evidence is the bloody knife. Right. Um, but we, we can synthesize these. Right. Because fundamentally, I have an experience as of the bloody knife. And that is best explained by the presence of the bloody knife. Right. So uh, now my model, my model includes the presence of a bloody knife. I can now further ask what explains the presence of the bloody knife. Right. And I'll try to figure out as best I can. Right. Whose blood is it? Yada, yada, yada. Right. Well, that's not a synthesis. That's just the mentalist response. Yeah. Okay. So I'm, I am fundamentally a, a mentalist oh, yeah. then, right? But uh, it's 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 a synthesis in the sense that it does not dismiss the claim that the the knife is evidence. I'm not saying it's false that the knife is evidence, right? Because it's it's a, it's a you know relevant explanation here. But the way that that it, it enters the framework as something which must be explained is because it um, it earned that by the presence of the bloody knife, ability to explain my mental states. I see. Right. So uh, I'm I'm not giving in. in uh, I'm not denying that we can legitimately say that the the knife is evidence, but um, to give an account of why it is evidence, that must then depend on um, you know the, the story about explaining my experiences, right? Um, so then that's how I'm going to respond to to uh, your claim, right? Uh, if a, a philosophical claim does a good job of explaining my intuitions right then that is the sort of thing that we can admit as something that might further need to be explained and i think the ultimate explanations are going to ground out in the nature of our concepts right and our are the functional dispositions to apply them in, in various sorts of ways 
right? But again, the way that the, that earns the right to be a thing that needs to be explained, right? And our ability to explain that then confers further justification, right? Um, is ultimately grounded in the ability to explain our intuitions, right? Um, but you can't just take a um, philosophical claim and say this cries out for explanation, right? Um, because you first need to convince me that it's reasonable to believe that philosophical claim. And the way that you do that is by showing that the truth of that philosophical claim is part of the best explanation of our intuitions to employ uh, the concepts which are constitutive of that philosophical claim. All right. Well, now might be a good time to say agree to disagree. <laughs> this is the topic. I understand your son is now home from the hospital. Yeah, that's true. Uh, we took a, a little bit break in the middle there, which got edited out. Um, but during that break, I found out that my son is now home from the hospital, and I would very much like to go home and see him. All right. So I won't delay you any further. Thank you, Matt, and I hope to have you on again. Yeah, I'd love to be back. We've got a lot more to discuss. Indeed, we do. Thank you.